You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm Dylan Rees. And you are the author of Downtime, The Lost Years of Doctor Who, which I am currently holding in my right hand. That's correct. That is me. And Dylan, before we explain what it's about, we have just come out of a lost year of Doctor Who. We have indeed a year that has been uh, sadly absent of Doctor Who, at least on the television. But, uh, you know, there's been Big Finish and the magazine and stuff to keep us going. Oh, there's always plenty of stuff to keep us going. There is indeed. And so what we're going to talk about, and this is a subject that we keep coming back to on the Blue Box podcast, and seeing as I'm currently about a fifth of the way into your book, maybe, yep. I thought it was a good time to go back to it and talk about it again. Yeah, I think I think that sounds right. So let's talk the wilderness years. Yes, the, that exciting term that uh, got plucked from uh, obscurity many years ago to describe, I guess it was 15, 16 years of uh, no Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Paul, Paul Cornell came up with it, wasn't it? I think. I, yeah, I think that's about right. Um, of course, it's 15, 16 years of no Doctor Who, except there was well, actually loads of Doctor Who. Yeah. It's just not all in its television form. The stuff that plugged the gaps. Yeah. And that is, well, we'll get into it in more detail later. Well, we'll get into it in more detail when we come to it. But your book, well, in brief, your book covers? I mean, it covers the wilderness years, as they call it. um, And a bit beyond that, it covers the Doctor Who spin-offs, but using sort of the tent poles of Doctor Who fandom as a whole at the time. So, But it's the BBV real-time Caldor City range of um, Doctor Who spin-offs. And that's videos and audios. Videos and audios. Um, there are some books and things, but we don't cover them in as much detail because there aren't enough pages in the book. Oh, no. My God. If you wanted to cover the entire output of everybody and everything in the lost years, you'd end up with a book the size of the complete Shakespeare or something. Well, that was, uh, and as we said, we'll get to the book later, but very briefly, that was one of the things I was sort of umming and ahhing about when I started it. I knew I wanted to cover the videos and the audios but it's like do you include everything and it just became apparent very quickly that there was so much there that you could write seven eight books something like that covering it all so basically you've stuck to sort of the official ones in inverted commas insofar as there is such a thing yes um and but also official in the sense that there's licensed things in it yeah but like not things that would feature the doctor or something like that so the bbc books or the virgin books they're sort of they're, they're almost that next level up of official. It's I like to think of it, if, if you're going to put it on your bookshelf, you put it in between um, the book Justice Served, which covered the audio visuals, and then that uh, the book on Big Finish and, and the start of yeah. that. The other, um, and it just sort of slots nicely in there. Right, so Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> I take it you were watching Doctor Who when Sylvester McCoy was the Doctor? 
I was. The first episode of Doctor Who I ever saw was Battlefield, episode one. On oh, my God. Broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> what a time to join the series. I know, I know. So um, I was, I think I was six or seven at the time. And, um, you know, you watch it and much like anybody at any other time, it drew me in and I watched the whole of that last season, apart from a bit of The Curse of Fenric because it was too frightening for me. Um, <laughs> You know, so, I mean, it was still doing its job and enthralling children and scaring kids. And I remember talking about it at school to quite a lot of people. Like, um, and even if they hadn't watched it, they were all tuning in the next week. It wasn't a big thing like it is now or was a few years ago or what it was in the 70s. But it was still a going concern in schools, I think, just to a smaller audience, obviously, as we know, because there was about three and a half million people watching or something. And do you know, do you remember how you felt? when you got to the end of the series and sort of it, did it gradually dawn on you that there wasn't going to be any more? And what was the next thing that happened? Did you, did you start, people start buying videos for you or something like that? I don't think it actually, I don't think I knew, I knew the series had ended, but I just assumed it would be back at some point. Um, at that point, I'd got no idea there was any other doctors or there was this yeah, big yeah. history of the show behind it. And it probably wasn't for a couple of years that I suddenly realized, oh, actually, there isn't any more Doctor Who. Um, but the the next thing was my uncle, I said to my uncle, oh, for Christmas, can you get me a Doctor Who video? Assuming that I'd just get one of the things I'd just seen as far as I knew. I knew my mum had said she used to watch it, but I, that could have been at any other time. And I, You don't really me, take that in, do you? At that no, age? no, not at all. Especially not thinking it was on 30 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um so he got me this video which was revenge of the cybermen and i didn't like it for about the first 20 minutes so i was like the theme tune was all wrong the music was awful <laughs> the, the the like i don't know who that guy was but he definitely wasn't my doctor like who where's sylvester mccoy and ace um but ultimately within about 20 minutes you start to notice things and i remember loving it by the end of it but um it was it was a massive shock to the system and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And I think slowly but surely, like, my dad liked Doctor Who. I wouldn't describe him as, like, a huge fan, but he's he grew up on sort of 70s Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, he, he can quote bits of the Seeds of Doom at you and stuff like that, and he'll watch it when it's on. But, you know, he's never seen loads of them, and he's, you know, he, he attends the odd convention if Tom Baker's going to be there or something like that, but he's not, like, a diehard fan. Um, so I think he sort of just in, informed me about at it and as you do if you've got that sort of nerdy vein in you you just start to want to know more about it and sort of pull in bits of information where you can well that's what i was going to say because even by this point you're still only what eight or nine years old yeah so how do you how, how do you go about starting to look into the vast history of doctor who at that sort of age i mean it's probably similar to people a few years before that in that my local library had target novelizations um ah. but it not only had target novelizations it had um do you remember the big peter haining books peter haining peter yeah, haining. yeah 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 um, uh, one was at the 20th anniversary one was the 25th and i used to take them out like weekly like i'd take it out look at it just look at the pictures read little bits of it there was too much detail in there i wasn't yeah. interested in and all of a sudden you sort you start absorbing this history and then one day i walk into the local news agents and there's a doctor who magazine and well this is perfect <laughs> you know and before you know it at that point you're a fan really aren't you like you've you've started to you want to read more about it you want to watch more of it but you're i mean i guess this is still true to a certain extent but doctor who's quite a weird show and it's one of the few programs that you kind of pick up on sporadically 
So at that point, the videos were coming out intermittently. They weren't in any order. Like now, it's insane. If it had never come out before, the whole history of Doctor Who, you'd get one long box set like everything else does. Yeah, yeah. But with this, you're just sort of picking random bits from the last 26 years and not really knowing what you're going to get. And it was quite, it was quite jarring. But once you got used to the idea, it was almost like it was a complete thing that you could just go, oh, I'll pick that bit. It was, it was, it's a really weird way to experience a series. It's like a jigsaw puzzle you're putting together. Yes, and I, which I did not complete for many years. Well, no, and actually, you know, we never are going to properly yeah. complete it, are we? Well, but exactly. No. As near as damn it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it was, yeah, I, you just, I know, like, um, in the early 90s, the BBC started running the repeats and stuff like that, so you got bits of that way. And I don't even... I don't know whether you remember it. There was a documentary called Resistance is Useless quite early on. Oh, yes. I've got uh, it on a disc somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was much derided at the time, I think. But um, being like eight years old or whatever, I was. it was just really exciting to see all these the clips. different bits. Yeah, to see all the clips. Like it, it didn't occur to me that the floating anorak or whatever it was might have been a... A piss a take. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to see half an hour's worth of clips together like that was just, yeah. you know, and at your age, yeah, to see all those clips is like all these tiny little bits of things that hopefully one day you might see. But yeah. for somebody my age, who by this time is in his 20s, to see all those clips was still just as magical because they're things that I never did see or hadn't seen for yeah. many, many years. Completely, yes, it was. Um, and I mean, you got that again. Uh, I mean, we're jumping a bit forward, but with 30 years in the TARDIS, um, in, when 1993, all of a sudden you've got this documentary on BBC One. And that was like, it wasn't just clips of Doctor Who. They had behind the scenes clips and rare studio footage. Like they really went to town on that to try and make something that sort of showed like this big thing as a whole, this Doctor Who as an entity, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So but then I... Sorry. Oh, go on, go on, go on. I, I mean, you just, the, again, there was little bits of information seeped out from places. So you go into, like, um, a local comic shop. You know, like, I'm from Birmingham, and there was uh, a Forbidden Planet, and there was a place called Nostalgia and Comics. And they'd be littered with fanzines and things like that. So all of a sudden, you're aware of, like, almost... The, yeah. The, the, there's other people out there, because there's, there's this official magazine, and then there's all these things with, like, hand-drawn covers and, you know, stories that they've made up themselves which you know were a varying quality but when you're <laughs> 10 that you don't really notice that so all of a sudden you're not just exposed to a program you're like oh other people like this and they really like this would you be buying these fanzines then yes i actually dug them all out when i was at christmas at christmas i was at my parents house and uh i found them all in a box um and yeah there's some very interesting stuff that uh, came out around that time um there was there was one called rumors and it was, I would say it was basically a precursor for like um, the Gallifrey Base Forum or something like that. And it was people would write in with bits of information they'd heard. And the magazine, this like A5 <laughs> pamphlet, pamphlet had, had report it as just they say this, this reader says this. And sometimes there were bits of truth in there. Like um, there were jumping further on, there were sort of seeds of like, early plot points to the tv movie coming out in there then in other points there's like colin baker and sylvester mccoy fall out at a convention behind the scenes <laughs> and it's just like it's gossip and yeah um, I, I i mean i'd love to find every issue of that and go through and see if you could actually validate how many of them actually came true but uh it was probably about three percent or something yeah exactly 
But still, it's fun. I tell you what, it would be great to sort of go back and just read over all the rubbish that was being said just to have a laugh at, you know, yeah. the kind of thing people were talking about. I mean, it still goes on. It's just, if it's in print, I guess you kind of... You give it more validation. You give it more validation. But we see it now, like somebody goes, I've heard the next Doctor is going to be Paul Daniels on the forum. And two days later, it's on the Daily Mail website because it's some journalist yeah. for clickbait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's no different at all. So what about other things like the Virgin books and things like that? Were you aware of those as well? I was aware of the Virgin. The Virgin book started quite early on, really. Like, I think it was 90, 1991, I think it was. I think um, it was 91. Yeah. Um, but I was a bit too young for them. I've since yeah, gone back yeah. and read some of them, um, but not all of them. And, you know, they're a varying quality. There's some really great stuff. In many ways, it's so far removed from doctor who some of them because it is this adult fiction but I, but that kind of reflects the sort of the changing nature of fandom it's like if you're a doctor who fan by the mid 90s you were definitely teenager above there obviously there are exceptions to that um so i guess that they were giving fans the sort of doctor who they they wanted or they thought they wanted of this well, sort of yeah well that's the thing about it if it's off the telly it's not getting yeah. a new generation of kids every year so it's only yeah. ever at that point going to have an audience who remembers it from being on the telly. And of course, they're getting older and older and older, the further away from that you get. And as you get further into it, you know, you get like that's the famous one, the Russell T. Davis one, where there's monsters cruising, uh, cruising, cruising grounds, as it were, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, inside of cocaine and things like that, which is just obviously um, a million miles away from probably what we would define as Doctor Who now. But again, it's shown the versatility of the format and saying, and you know, there is a possibility, and I, I must have been discussed at some point at somewhere in the BBC, that maybe had Doctor Who been brought back at a different time, it would have been brought back as an adult series. I know at one point, this was sort of mooted in the fan press, and I think it even made it into SFX. Paul W.S. Anderson, who did um, oh, yeah, yeah, Resident yeah. Evil and stuff, he was in talks, Very, it was probably no more than two meetings or something, but of rebooting Doctor Who which obviously would have been a very different take so i mean well, look at the tv work. movie if that had gone to a series that would have been in the x-files slot probably or yeah. between eight and nine it wouldn't have been for kids no it would have it would have had i think yeah it, it wouldn't have been for kids at all it was definitely going for that sort of that genre for the genre audience that was around in the time it was very much x-files it was a little bit next generation it was and then all those other shows you forget like space above and beyond and things like that that just sort of had two seasons and disappeared and it yeah. probably would it probably wouldn't have lasted more than a season or two um and it's actually I, a lot of people have said this but it's quite weird with the tv movie actually how safe what we got actually was considering all the different ideas a, a year before it was a complete reboot or 18 yeah. months before the script they had and then the last minute all of a sudden you've got sylvester mccoy showing up in the middle of a gunfight and and it's you know pretty near to doctor who whatever you might think of the finished product oh i think it's i think apart from the first five minutes which kind of throws in so much at you, you it's bound to lose any kind of casual audience but apart from that first five minutes i think the rest of it's great yeah but well, I... but it's not really for kids it's for a different audience that's that's the only difference it's it is doctor who but it's doctor who skewed for an audience that remembers doctor who yeah i mean than, yeah the, the early there's a weird thing about up until the TV, TV movie is that 
almost as soon as Doctor Who finishes, it suddenly becomes this sort of revered piece of nostalgia. And this attitude changes again in, later in the 90s. Almost the moment you finish, uh, the season's finished, you've got uh, Beast Guy B do a Doctor Who weekend, which is dedicated to the first 10 years of the series. Soon after that, um, UK Gold start running the series. BBC Two start showing um, repeats on a Friday night um, out, of, out of the summer season, basically. And that leads right up to 1993 and the the 30th anniversary, whatever people may think about it, it was a big retrospective. Even down to the big convention, they had Panopticon 93, where yeah, all of a sudden yeah. you had people from every era of the show, and you could have put a full stop on the show there and gone, well, what a great series Doctor Who used to be. And it finished, and that was it, and it was all covered. And I think the TV movie sort of spawned out of that. And then sort of after that, it starts to slowly become this thing of this jokey thing of wobbly sets and what have you. Well, do you remember Dimensions in Time being on? Did you watch it? I did. I remember watching it. I remember thinking it was brilliant. Um, <laughs> now, because it was it was all the doctors together. So yeah, why, yeah. Wouldn't it, why wouldn't it be brilliant? Now, obviously, we all know nobody's going to hold that up in high regard as a, as a great piece of television. But... And now we know what was going on behind the scenes. Like there could have been the dark dimension, which probably would have equally not been very good. Yeah. Um, it was just it a bit bad yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Um, and but the, I mean, I suppose the biggest tragedy of that sort of of there not being a proper 30th anniversary special is that it's probably the last time. Certainly with the 80s doctors, you could have got them together looking like yeah. their, their older selves. But then you can always say that with well, every 10 years. Um, but then like Pertwee was so known, like he by that point, he basically he just showed up as the doctor here and there and everywhere. Yeah. And it's weird for me when I think of John Pertwee, I don't think of the 70s John Pertwee. I think of him dimensions in time showing up at conventions in the 90s and stuff like that or this old man in his uh, frilly shirt and frock coat and what have you. It's, yeah. um, so oh, it was, I remember watching it and the only one that it struck me that looked different was Tom Baker because he didn't have the curls anymore. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course but he didn't the, join the others in the story either, which was No, but odd. that's classic Tom Baker, isn't it? He well, just, yeah. He's, he's got his own agenda, but I don't think he even knows what that agenda is. No. So, but it did make him feel somewhat uh, out of step with the others at that point. Yeah, I mean, there was at the time um, I cover a little bit of this in the book. Like he was, he was, he sort of left up to who behind for quite a while, um, and obviously he never really wanted anything that much to do with the other Doctors, and so the whole big fallout of uh, Dark Dimension that it was a story about tom baker rather than the doctors yeah and john pertley was mad because he was like well i'm the oldest doctor so i should be the lead character in it or it should be sylvester who's the incumbent doctor and um in interviews at the time you see john pertley going oh we're all we're all a great brotherhood but you know um, there's one we don't get on with too well <laughs> um, but then that rivalry was more between them i don't think any of them have ever been particularly close with Tom Baker. He's just a bit of a weird enigma. But again, that's how he was in fandom because he was revered as, you know, the mythical Tom Baker who was the idol of everybody's childhoods and never showed up to conventions. And it was a big thing when they got him at the 93 convention and um, for the Panopticon celebrations. That and he was didn't he, he insisted on sitting on a different sofa or something? No, no, that was that, that was, was later. Years. That was at the fiftieth. The um, so at the oh, of course it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the Panopticon celebration, he had his own panel, 
uh, where it was just him talking. And then they did a four doctors panel later on, which was all the doctors apart from him, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, but so, I mean, but that, you know, that was the only way they could get him there. And then he slowly started doing little things here and there. It was always a big thing at the Panopticon every year was, is Tom Baker going to be there? And he showed up maybe another two times and uh, he'd, he'd do a panel in the morning, do a signing and it'd be gone by lunchtime. That's Tom Baker for you. Yeah, exactly. So by the time the TV movie rolls around, you're, what, 12, something like that, 11? 1996. I would have been 13. Yeah, 13, actually. So were you, and by this point, I'm assuming you were buying the magazine as a regular thing. Yeah, I was buying the magazine, picking up videos of birthdays and things like that. Generally sort of absorbed in... Doctor Who fandom, as you'd call it. I, my dad used to take me to conventions in Coventry because I was from Birmingham, so they were nearby. I used to go to a local group called the Wolves of Fenric, um, where wow. a bunch a bunch of fans basically used to sit around uh, an old TV and watch like they'd have like an extended black and white copy of episode two of Resurrection of the Daleks, and you'd watch it and go, "Oh, look, there's an extra." bit where someone walks through a door or something like that or they <laughs> or they put on like a myth makers tape that you haven't seen before and you go oh look a michael craze interview and uh a bit, it was a lot of fun and i guess it was just a way to meet people and see things that you weren't sure you'd ever be able to see little did we know we'd have dvds with every yeah. deleted scene and this that and the other so that's yeah, quite I guess that, immersed for that yeah, sort of age yeah it was like i was definitely I was super immersed actually. Um, it was one that I was just the, the weird kid at school who had like that weird hobby that people ba- vaguely remembered Sylvester McCoy. Um, and I was just like obsessed with it. I was just like what anything it... I could get my hands on. Yeah. But what did the teachers make of it? Cause they must've remembered Dr. Who. Yeah. One of the teachers at my secondary school was a massive Dr. Who fan. So we got on very well. Yeah. Um, but I, I've got a letter from uh, a school report from my English teacher just going, he Dylan reads loads, but can you get him to read something that isn't a Doctor Who novel? Yeah, yeah. Because it was sort of a classic thing. But we used to have like different categories you had to fill in, and it was like history, and it's like, oh well, the gunfighters, and it was like <laughs> fantasy, oh the mind robber, and things like that. So you just just anything you could. It's the, it's the, the, well, uh, the diverse format, isn't it? You can yeah. sort of like anything out of it. I even got in there with the, uh, I put the TV movie in there as romance. So uh, I'd, I'd got it all covered. But, uh, <laughs> it's okay. I read other books now. It's fine. I've read at least three others. Well, what I was leading to was, do you, do you remember as the TV movie's coming up and you're starting to get news reports and things like that about it? And can you remember how excited you were that actually there was going to be proper new Doctor Who coming up? I remember not believing it. I think by that point, there'd been so many false starts. And there was, and Doctor Who magazine were very, just before Gary Russell took over, every month, the news that they would roll on was, oh, there's this company pitching for it. There's these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there was a company called Blacklight. There was the favourite, is it David Burton or something like that? Who That's right, drove yeah, around yeah. in a car that said, I'm the next Doctor Who. There was talk of an animated thing. There was... There were so many different people, Jerry Davis and Terry Nation, Verity Lambert, all of them apparently pitching for things. So it was always, and then the next month they'd be like, oh, that's not happening. And then Dark Dimension, oh, that's not happening. And yeah. so on and so on. So nobody, I don't think anybody really believed it. In fact, 
I can tell you when I really believed it is that I showed up, there was a convention in Birmingham called Alecon and Sylvester McCoy was supposed to be there and he wasn't there because he was filming the TV movie. <laughs> and so all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, so it's definitely, even when Paul McGann was announced, because there was always people announced, like, yeah, I'm, yeah. Th- there's an issue of Doctor Who magazine somewhere where they're talking about how Denzel Washington's almost certainly going to be the next Doctor. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was, it was a weird time. At the same time, I don't think when it happened, it must have it was only really like a six month concern. Like it was pretty soon. But certainly by the beginning of 1997, everybody knew that there was there was nothing else coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it had gone to a series, it would have had to have gone to a series pretty much straight away, wouldn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, the moment's gone, isn't it? Exactly. And it's, you know, it did well over here. And had the BBC made it by themselves, maybe it would have been a different thing but ultimately we all know that it flopped in the states and so it was gone which but then again i think that just sort of put the full stop on it even more and said right there definitely won't be any more doctor who so you start picking up these other little bits you're still sort of grabbing at whatever films and uh, whatever videos are out there what's on uk gold and things like that you know um See, for me, just to get in, that was the opposite effect. The TV movie proved to me that there kind of would be more Doctor Who because it was successful enough and it still worked. And I just thought, well, they just need to wait now until the time is right and the rights are in the right place and the right people are there to make it. But one day it'll... That was just... I don't think that was my immediate reaction, but that was gradually what the TV movie came to mean to me, that Doctor Who was something that could be resurrected. I think there was sort of, um, we'll jump ahead a little bit, like there's there's certain key points and rumours and things that happen over the next sort of seven or eight years after the TV movie. And like the first key one is that there was a thing, and it was talked about in Doctor Who magazine called Doctor Who 2000. And I think that what that turned out to be was Russell T. Davis's first meetings about Doctor Who, when it it was literally like a meeting that said, I'd like to do it. You can't, the rights are tied up. But he got as far as going, well, it'd be like this. It'd be about an old man in an attic or something like that. That's when they were even discussing the BBC went, we want Tom Baker to play the Doctor. And everybody went, well, that's a great idea. Um, (laughs) And, and then, obviously, a bit later, you get the uh, Mark Gatiss and uh, the Gareth Roberts, yeah, um, and Clayton Hickman um, pitch that they did, which right, was, yes, but that's that, that's much later. We're still in 1996. Well, um, yeah, but let's go back. Let's talk about the stuff that's in your book then, because okay. we had this on the podcast and we went yeah. through a lot of them, but our yeah. experience of them, well, wasn't really up to snuff, really. I mean, I. I was surprised sort of I was I discovered these things in the early 90s as sort of so when you were still a kid yeah as an obscurity and so the few that I saw to start with the first one I saw was a stranger one called the the terror game now the stranger started off as this weird doctor who clone but by the time it was the terror game it was its own they'd got rid of anything sort of doctor who related apart from the actors and it much its own thing about this basically space terrorist sort of thing it was not doctor who anymore and so i was that was a bit jarring and i was just like okay this is good it's science fiction i like science fiction whatever but then you go back to the earlier ones and it's like oh no this is just doctor who without calling yeah. it doctor who and the makers of it never saw it any other way but then there was the more official stuff like wartime starred john levine yeah sergeant Benton. Go back, no but rewind to you watching the first one how did you get to see it 
that was I bought I'd, I'd read bits about it in magazines and Doctor Who magazine and I just they at this Wolves of Fenric meeting they had a, a merchandise table where they used to sell stuff and they had a few of these videos and I just went I'll have that one and it was like nine pounds or something like that I took it home and I watched it and I, I enjoyed it I genuinely thought like this is some good sci-fi but I couldn't see what it had got to do with Doctor Who apart from the fact that Colin Baker was in it what did you think of the fact that you're buying for nine pounds or whatever because I mean you, you uh, this is probably what 40 minutes long maybe yeah and so I'm assuming there are no extras on these tapes, like when they oh, no, reissued no. them on DVD. No, nothing like that. So what did you think of spending £9 on something that was only half the length of a proper story, as it were? I think... I think did that even I occur could, to you? I don't think it ever occurred to me. Like, I I used to sort of take in any bits of Doctor Who that I could, no matter, like, the, the, the length of them. I guess the length never really occurred because it was just it was another something that I hadn't seen before yeah um, and i guess as long as it was a full story you're not thinking about yeah. how long it is i mean there is um uh, there was a couple of strangers that the, they made a 90 minute one the last one was 90 minutes and they put it on two 45 minute tapes that you had to buy separately wow that, and that was a bit cheeky yeah. um which bill bag said afterwards that he regretted but it was just like it's twice as long it costs twice as much to make so i mean that's yeah. not strictly true but, you know, but that, so those, that, those was a bit weird. But then with things like, I remember seeing Shakedown, which had the Santarans in, and Downtime, which was the big one, which had the Brigadier, Sarah Jane Smith, Victoria Waterfield. And for me, as a kid, like everybody hates the word canon, but loves to debate it aimlessly. I, <laughs> the, the word canon obviously didn't really exist in, to me in th- at that point. But I just went, well, of course, that's as much as Doctor Who was the image of the Fendal or something like that, because it's got the Brigadier in it, it's got Sarah Jane. What, why wouldn't it be? Just because the Doctor's not in it. It's, it's, it's just another extension of the Doctor Who universe. And I suppose when you're, if you're introduced <laughs> to these things when you're that young, you probably don't notice the, the difference in how much budget has been spent on these things either. No, exactly. It's like they all looked pretty... They, they all looked about the same standard as Doctor Who to me. Now, obviously, Doctor Who was also made on a very limited budget and these were five or six years later but no we're doctor who fans we're not supposed to notice budget are we um it's 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 ingrained in us so um but especially at that age uh, like i don't remember ever thinking oh this looks rubbish i just remember thinking that they were intriguing stories that were either doctor who or sort of doctor who so what gets so what's interesting now is I mean, I'm assuming you've bought this first one and you'll carry on buying more. But, I mean, you've only got, at this sort of age, you've only got so much money. You've only got so much budget yourself. So do you ever think to yourself, oh, well, here on the one hand, I've got Summoned by Shadows, and here on the other hand, there's a VHS tape of the talents of Wang Chiang. Well, I think I'll go for Summoned by Shadows. Did you ever have moments like that? I did, but I just, I I think I was so... There was me and my brother who were both into Doctor Who. I've got a younger brother who is uh. just just as Doctor Who-y as me. My dad was into it. My uncle was quite into it. My uncle um, and his wife never had kids, so they were kind of like my uncle would buy me quite a lot of presents, not loads of presents, not spoil me, like. Yeah. But he, you know, he'd treat me like, "Oh, do you want a video?" And it'd be like, "Yeah, I want the Doctor Who one." And then whatever I'd missed. Christmas or birthdays came around. Everybody else was getting action figures, and I was like, "I want the Towns of Wing Chiang. I want Summoned by Shadows. I want I, I a, ca- a countless list of Myth Makers tapes that I wanted." Right. Which I suppose my parents just despaired. They were just like, "What? What is all this stuff?" 
like what 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 is a myth makers tape i was like oh it's an interview with someone from doctor who and it's just like yeah they they, they didn't get it that did you have far, a, but... did you have a telly and a video in your bedroom then because i can't I... imagine that you had the run of the living room to watch <laughs> this stuff um the i could i could watch doctor who in the living room if nobody else was watching um or if it was on tv could record it or you know go there yeah. early in the morning nobody cares do they when it was on uk gold but yeah i had a tv and a video in my room and i just sit up there watching doctor who wow. and doctor who related drama um it's changed i'm not like that anymore i don't think only like once or twice a week but, uh, <laughs> But even then, I don't think I was consu- like one of the strange things coming to this book when I started to research it. I thought maybe there was 10 videos, 10 audio plays. And, you know, there was a few bits that I vaguely remember seeing that I hadn't bought or heard anything about. And coming to it and actually researching it, I was like, whoa, there's actually like there was 26 drama videos. And then there was like 42 audio plays or something. 26? So, yeah, in total. Wow, I don't. I thought when we, when I put together the stuff for the um, podcast we did about six months ago, I I don't remember discovering twenty six. Well, it's they kind of get grouped together, which is yeah. so like there were six stranger stories. There were four yeah. clones. Then there was things like Cyberon, and there was which wasn't really Doctor Who at, at all, but it was sci-fi. It was still um, BBV, wasn't it? Yeah, it was still BBV. And then there was the, all the real-time stuff. So they did Mind Game, Mind Game Trilogy, Deimos Rises, and loads of other stuff. Like, and there was a, and more recently, Bill Bags came back and did one more. And there was obviously the famous Zygon film, things, yeah. things like that. So there's all this stuff. But the and as well, I didn't realise the audios had gone on for so long. So all of a sudden, Bill Bags did um, a lot of audios, which we'll come to in a moment. And well, the audios so, preceded the videos, didn't they? No, no, no. They so they did. There was the audios which were in Justice Served, which were the um, what do you call them? Audio visuals. So that was nothing but Doctor Who. We don't cover that yeah. in the book, apart from in the first chapter, but. At, later on, before Big Finish, Bill Bags. So actually, we're probably about up to date. Um, about 1998, Bill Bags made an approach to Virgin and the BBC to do official Doctor Who audio, um, and they turned him down. He wanted to make dramatis- dramatizations of the new adventures, um, and he went basically, "I'm going to do it anyway." So that's when he did this series called. It started off called Audio Adventures in Time and Space, which uh. was. The Professor and Ace. Uh, <laughs> Ace not being a, a licensed character, he was just like, well, so, what if Sophie Aldred plays a character called Sarah? She can never play another ca- character called Sarah. And obviously they got a slap on the wrist eventually. But that was kind of, that was before Big Finish had even started doing the um, the Bernie stuff. So it was very much like, it was just him taking another risk and eventually he got burnt. But that audio range went went for years, like, up until 2002 something like that um and they they did some really interesting stuff and a lot of people like it's something we discussed in the book like a lot of people have said they don't think the big finish would have existed if it wasn't for bill bags basically going out there and proving it could work but in doing so stopping himself from ever getting the license whereas that's kind of odd because he's going off and doing these things and nicholas briggs is going off and doing his own things and they're kind of I don't suppose competing is the right word, but they're both sort of doing it at the same time, presumably, but entirely well, separate from one another. So Nick Briggs worked on many of the BBV things, including the early um, audio stuff 
the early audio adventures in time and space. The first two of that range with Sylvester and Sophie in are written by Mark Gatiss. Um, and and personally, I think they're the two best doctor who, even though they're not doctor who scripts he's ever done. Um, like at that point, if you'd have said that's the man who could bring Doctor Who back to television, I think I would have gone, yes, because he gets it. The first one's called Republica, and it's like a bit of a sort of alternative reality thing dealing with um, Cromwell and things like that, and it's a really strong sci-fi piece. And the second one's like a sort of a bit like The Thing, but set on a a Nazi-occupied island, and it's it's really sort of, it's got a really good atmosphere, but, you know, they're playing on the nostalgia that Gattis often does in his sort of Doctor Who's. Well, I'd say if uh, you said to a lot of fans that those two were the best Doctor Who scripts he'd ever written, a lot of people would yeah. say, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people would. I'm I'm quite a fan of some of Gators' stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody will say it's the strongest. And later on in the, um, but also conversely, later on in that range, you get Rob Shearman writing one under the name uh, Jeremy Ledbetter. Um, and that's the first sort of Doctor Who related thing he's ever done. And that's another really strong script. It's not really Doctor Who, but it's all, it's very, very strong. Um, and there's loads of other little people that sort of pop up there that were sort of, some of them went on to big finish and it's almost like it started to become a bit of a training ground in a way. Yeah, like, yeah. So, and Bill Baggs was very open to giving people a chance to, you know, new people that had never written anything before. And you got some really, really interesting stuff. You also got some, really really awful stuff as well um but you know it's never let nevertheless it's still fans giving it a hundred percent um you know trying to some of them forging careers for the first time and this is still the you know the late the late 90s or and yeah, yeah. So at that point so this is a weird thing those audios were coming out and then big finish announced bernie summerfield that they were doing a couple of adaptations of the Bernice books. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. Who would want to listen to uh, a spin-off of a spin-off? It was essentially a character that had never been on TV, that um, it was in the books, and someone was making an audio play. And I just thought, no one wants to listen to that when I can listen to Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldridge sort of being the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. But were you listening to any of these things at the time? Yeah, um, not a huge amount, because, again, money comes into it. When you've got the videos... And also you're getting a bit older and, you know, starting to think that maybe I might need to leave my bedroom at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I certainly heard the first three or four of the uh, Sylvester and Sophie ones. And then I picked up a few of the later ones. Um, and I, it's, it's weird. They've got this rip off Doctor Who theme tune that they play. Right. And it kind of evokes a sense of nostalgia in the same way that the Doctor Who theme tune of the 80s does in me. That like, takes me back to a certain point, um, even though it is just a rip-off, a complete rip-off of the Doctor Who theme tune. But it's, 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 it's there's some really strong stuff. And actually, because it can't be Doctor Who, because yeah. they can't use the Daleks or the Brigadier or whatever, it's, they just concentrate on telling these really good sort of Doctor Who adventures. They land on a planet, you they're never in the TARDIS because they just leave the ship behind and they go out and they explore. And Nigel Fares, who writes quite a lot of this range, he cracks Doctor Who in a way, Doctor Who audios in a way that it's like, oh, this feels like a bit new, but a bit like traditional Doctor Who as well. And it's like if they'd had got the license, Big Finish went very safe when they started. 
BBV weren't afraid to sort of push the boundaries and go, let's explore this a little bit. They all, eventually they went too far. And as Big Finish announces their license to do Doctor Who, you get this whole thing of BBV diversifying and they, they start mopping up the rights to monsters and they start doing Sontaran stories and they do a Rani story, which is one of the worst things you'll ever hear. Um, <laughs> written by Pip and Jane Baker as well. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And they do a rooting story, and um, where else they do a crinoid? Crinoids don't transcend very well to audio, but no. you know, yeah. like, uh, it was enough to to grab people in. They do some Zygon ones that are really good, and towards the end of that range, there's um, there's some really really strong sort of things where like there's a there's a two hander. Um, I think it's called Old Soldiers, and it's just a, a Sontaran uh, being interrogated by a military officer, and this Sontaran has been on Earth for years and has been somehow manipulating the events of sort of um, Earth's war history, essentially. And it's just these two people going at it in a room, sort of telling this story. And it's a really like it's it's a really strong piece, considering that probably about 400 people only ever heard it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's look, let's go back to talking about Doctor Who for a minute. Yeah. So you're, you are picking up all the different Doctors piecemeal throughout the 1990s on VHS and on yeah. TV as and when you can. Yeah. Now, two, two questions really sort of spring out of that. Questions I've asked other people before, but I mean... How do you get a sense of the history of the program? Because if you're picking at it piecemeal, you, uh, as opposed to somebody who went through it in order as it was broadcast, and so everything has its context and everything has its place, if you're watching something like, I don't know, uh, let's say Time Lash one week and Time uh, Talons of Wang Chiang the next, do you really get much of a sense of... The fact that one of them's this great story and the other one's really not, or are they all no, much of a muchness? And I mean, there's a weird sort of decade thing that sort of you—they all feel like the same thing. You all the once you discover the idea of regeneration, and you know that those are the basic tent poles. Every now and then, there's going to be a regeneration, and every, at every point, they're going to meet a, the Daleks, or they're going to meet the Master or the Cybermen, and you want to know when was the first time that happened or whatever. The rest of it's just sort of, ah, oh, who's that? Who's that companion with him there? What's going on there? And the only time, and it was the only time that the BBC ever clearly went, we can't release these stories um, willy-nilly, was The Key to Time and Trial of a Time Lord. Yeah. And they put them all out. Key to Time came out monthly, and Trial of a Time Lord came out in a tin. And that was the only time you ever got any sort of cohesiveness. But it didn't really feel too jarring. There was definitely eras but you could, those eras were pretty much black and white, 70s and 80s. And the weird thing is the 80s was the one that sort of drew me in because it was like Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred were my doctor yeah. and companion, I guess, but only just. But there was a, a, a great thing of their story sort of felt a little bit unfinished, that there was all this possibility that still went out there that happened in the new adventures and on these audios and this, that and the other. So that was still going on somewhere. But then the Colin Baker era and the Peter Davison era sort of felt like that, but not cooked. But yeah. obviously now you look at it and they're all completely different. But I, and also it's about the styles and the way they were shot and things like that. So you kind of went, I would only ever sort of go, oh, this one feels a bit 80s. And Tom Baker and John Pertwee to me were basically the same person, which is 
so weird to even think about it like that. They were the stern sort of 70s doctors. And I remember not, John Pertwee's never particularly done it for me. And I think that was because the first, you know, he's a bit of an asshole in some of those yeah, stories. Yeah. The ones that came out first were things like, I remember seeing the Claws of Axos and coming away from that going, I don't like that guy at all. And the same, <laughs> same with Spearhead from Space. But, I mean, at the same time, John Pertwee as a person was always at these conventions. And he, so it's back to this whole thing of you kind of enjoy the character more. It's a bit uh, like the actor more than the actual character. And it's the lines become blurred. Whereas I remember the first convention I went to, I'd never seen a Colin Baker story. I just heard that he was the nasty doctor. Right. And Colin, meeting Colin Baker and him being the nicest person in the world. And I couldn't marry the two in my head how, how that had worked, really. And what did you think then when you did see a Colin Baker story? The fir- what was the first one they released? The Twin Dilemma. And I'll be, honest with you, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I don't really... I can remember watching it and don't thinking, not thinking, hey, this isn't sort of different from many other things. Like, it's not as good, but I don't remember watching it and thinking it was bad. No. The first time I ever remember watching a Doctor Who and thinking it was bad was The King's Demons. Oh, really? What did you make of that then? Do you know what it was about it that made you think, oh, this isn't as good? I just remember thinking, there's nothing going on here. And how did nobody realise that that guy was the master? Yeah. And just like, just, this is ridiculous. Like, I just, and that was the first time I realised that Doctor Who could be a bit shit. Um, But obviously, I still loved it. Um, But yeah, (laughs) it was, uh, the weird thing is, is is what you get from watching, enjoying Doctor Who sort of on a drip feed is this thing of, so Talons of Wing Chiang and Revenge of the Cybermen have been out for years, so I watched them again and again and again. So now, all these years later, half the time, if I go back to a Doctor Who, I end up going thinking, I'll watch something like Delta and the Bannermen or Underworld, because it's like they feel fresher in a way, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I was overexposed to them as a child. Like the, for, I watched the Keys of Marinus far more often than I should do for some reason, because it was like one of the last Hartles I, I saw, and it was just... So that was almost like a holy grail, in a way. Got to see the Keys of Marinus. I've seen Unearthly Child loads, because it was out for years and years and years. Oh, bizarrely, then. I don't know where and how, but Keys of Marinus was one of the first Hartnells I saw. Really? It must have been a pirate video or something. Yeah. I mean, those I, they did the rounds once UK Gold was out. And we came yeah, to, yeah. I came to quite late. But once those repeats were out there, you could swap tapes and things like that. But then I remember I joined the, the Dwas for a bit. And you could, at one point in, in Dwas, you could trade tapes in the back. But then they stopped it because they were the official society, yada, yeah. yada, yada. They couldn't be seen to promoting those things, and the internet wasn't really about. So it was like there was tape trading was sort of this mythical thing that you, you couldn't really get into. Right. So let's talk about the BBVs and real times and stuff, because at the same time as Doctor Who's going on, these other things are going on. Were you keeping up with them? Not as I said, not. I was keeping up with them like I was always aware of what was out, and the B, um, the. Um, real-time ones were definitely the ones that were the ones to get because they were proper Doctor Who, obviously, you know, that's up for debate, but they were the ones that were like, we've got licensed characters from Doctor Who. Yeah. But then Bill Baggs, like, one of the themes in the book is sort of he does these weird sort of half Doctor Whos and you're never quite really sure where he goes. And the the weirdest, one of the weirdest choices Bill Baggs ever made was he made the Zero Imperative, which had 
four actors that played the Doctor in it, obviously not playing the Doctor or parts not like the Doctor at all, and then Liz Shaw's in it. And it's just, it's. I, I remember thinking that was really jarring because it's like, why is Liz Shaw not looking at this man that looks just like an old version of her Doctor played by John Pertwee, <laughs> going, who, who is this person? Why, why does he look like the Doctor? It's, it's really peculiar. But at the same time, Liz Shaw wasn't enough of a concern for me. If you know, like she was somebody yeah. that was in four stories of which I'd probably seen one. So she was, it was just like, that's not a proper Doctor Who thing really. But on the other side of it, you've got Sarah Jane in downtime or you've got a draconian in mind game or something like that. So those ones were the big, and I remember um, downtime, the um, production, that was the big one at the time. It was the most expensive one they ever made. It cost 56,000 pounds, which was a lot of money for something like this back then. And even now, and it was written by Mark Platt, which was a Doctor Who writer. Yeah. It was directed by Christopher Barry, who was a Doctor Who director. It had all these Doctor Who characters and Doctor Who actors in it. It had the Yeti in, and it had a big premiere at Panoptic in 95. And it, there was a big push for it. And they, it, there was things on sort of bits of television and stuff like that. Like it sort of almost penetrated, not mainstream media, but certainly the wider genre press. And, you know, little bits of interest. The same way as Shakedown, Return of the Santarans did, which was written by Terence Dix, had all these people in, even though, but they were playing complete. It was basically people from Blake Seven and Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parts. And that, I'd like, the Santarans appeared on The Big Breakfast on Channel 4 in the morning. Um, oh, they really? Went on, yeah, they went on Sky News and things like that. There was a bit, it got reviews in, I think, The Guardian and things like that. There was a big push there to well, sort wasn't... of. Well, I haven't got to this part in your book yet, so I'm only going by memory and bits and pieces I've read here and there. Wasn't one of the people, or I say people, one of the the the, the te- people behind Down um, Shakedown? Wasn't that part produced by one of the sci-fi magazines or something? Yes, it was. Uh, so the, in the 80s and early 90s, there was DWB, the Doctor Who Bulletin, which was the one that it was a fanzine. That, hmm. The one that it was. It, on one hand, it was waging a very vocal war against John Nathan Turner, and it was this pathetic sort of rag of a sort of whingy fan, like the all the worst bits of fandom. On the other side, there were some really good research articles in there of people, Doctor Who fans really digging and providing the sort of articles that only people like you and me would want to read, yeah. whereas Doctor Who magazine was more sort of, you know, mainstream as it were. It had to be accessible. And they... Obviously, after four years of there being no Doctor Who, they went, well, we can't carry this on. We've got nothing to bitch about anymore. So um, <laughs> they they decided to turn themselves into a proper sort of bona fide sci-fi magazine with always leaning towards Doctor Who. They lent, in fact, they lent a lot towards the older stuff. So they do retrospectives on things like The Survivors and Blake Seven and things like that. And then all the new American shows, because obviously there was a lot, there was a big revival in the 90s of of sci-fi it just wasn't happening really in england yeah um, and so they relaunched as Dreamwatch, and um gary lee who ran it um put in most of the money for uh shakedown and the other bit of money was provided by jason hay gallery who obviously went on to set up uh big, big finish. finish and is that the reason why it's not on dvd there's there's varying reports um they have discussed it they've met up and talked about it a few times but i think what the thing that most worries, um, and this is sort of hearsay, most worries Jason Hay Gallery, who now owns most of the rights, 
is that they've got a very good relationship with the with the BBC. Yeah. And the BBC have now owned the rights to the Sontarans, which they didn't back in the 90s. They bought them off Robert the Robert Holmes estate. So I think they're just a bit worried that putting out this, what was very good for the time, but essentially, you know, a videotape drama from the 90s that, yeah, yeah. whose legal status was sort of dubious. There's the reason the Sontarans don't look quite like the Sontarans in uh, Shakedown is because they couldn't get the rights to use the image because the BBC owned that. So they just have the rights to the name and basically the character, yeah. basically. So they, so, yeah, so they kept the basic form and they they just changed it. And I, I love the design of the Sontarans in Shakedown. But again, weird growing up in the 90s. They're so, that's sort of the design that I think of of the Sontarans, like that weird sort of orangey-brown look that they gave them. Wow. Do you know, I've not seen Shakedown. Uh, somebody gave me a VHS tape of it just at the time I got rid of my VHS recorder. Well, I'm sure you, you wouldn't have to go too far to find a copy. Oh, um, that's true, yeah. Most of these things float about on the internet uh, in, you know, sort of third-generation fan copy uploaded to YouTube. But it's, you know, it's written by Terence Dick, so it's 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 a good, solid sort of little adventure story made on an obvious limited budget. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see. Well, and um, Terence Dick's also wrote the first uh, Mind Game. He did, yeah, and he writes a little bit of the second one. Yeah, the first segment yeah. of the second, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's you know, it's Terence Dix is good with his dialogue. He solid plots, but obviously, when you're working on a, a a small budget, especially with Mind Game, which is essentially set in one room, yeah, there's not a lot you can do, and that does suffer from it. But Mind Game is an interesting sort of experiment, if you will. It was it's shot multi camera in, in a time where multi camera is just only done for sitcoms and stuff. And it doesn't entirely work. And Keith Barnfather, who ran Real Time, was very honest about it at the time. There was a big making. There's a making of on the VHS and the DVD that's better than Mind Game itself. Um, <laughs> it's it's just an interesting story. And well, I but, liked Mind Game actually. I thought it worked. I mean, to a point. Yeah. I because mean, you have to, when you look at these things, you have to remember where they came from, and you can't compare them with the television program, really. No, not as a no. grown-up. You just have to say, right, this is what it is, and does it work for what it is? And I thought Mind Game actually was one of the better ones. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a Sontar and a Draconian and a person that could possibly be Ace. Yeah, uh, in a room together, and you know, throwing around some decent dialogue, and you know, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I mean, at the same time, you've got Bill Bags tried to launch the nearest he got so he started with the zero imperative which was a, that weird hybrid but then and he that's took the, the first probe one isn't it yeah and so they did three more of those and probes probably the most professional bill bags ever gets you know it's up it's up to everybody else to sort of judge the merits of his professionalism we talk about it a little bit in the in the book and try and put it in context of what you would have seen on tv at the time right. but it's a series. The first one especially has got Peter Davison, who's quite a bankable name still at the time. Yeah. Um, Caroline John is playing this detective, and it, they cheekily build it as the British X-Files, which it isn't. And if they'd have spent a, a little bit more due time and care on this sort of further trilogy, they did. His hope was to try and sell it as a big series. They, they got Charles Kay in one of them. Um, who else? That, who'd been in uh, Edge of Darkness. They'd got... Um, a couple of other well-known actors at the time to try and sell. It was like, right, this is going to be the thing I sell to a network as a series. And the fact that it's a Doctor Who spin-off isn't really played at all. It's just about a detective investigating weird goings on. Yeah. But 
the the as we discover in the book, Bill Bags tends to sort of cut corners, cut budgets, and mm. it it doesn't quite work like that. I, to me, that's the nearest they ever got to having a, a marketable product beyond the Doctor Who universe. So, one last question before we get into uh, well, I want to find out how and why the book came about. But before we get there. One of the ones that I was most interested in, not because necessarily they're that good, but because it's my favourite Doctor Who monster, was the Auton trilogy. Ah, yes. So, I mean, I guess we're roughly going in order here, and we're up to the late 90s, early noughties now, and there's a couple things we can cover after that. But the Autons, it's it's ultimately what drove the wedge between Nick Briggs and Bill Baggs. More of that later, or more of that in the book. I don't want to give away all the exciting gossip, but um, they're, they're interesting. You've got there again, they're simple stories. The first one set in a warehouse, you've got a set of new characters that are nothing to do with Dr. Who and the Autons are the menace in it. And, you know, I really, I've got a really soft spot for the first two. They're quite interesting sort of, bits of doctor who drama by the third one it all goes a bit weird they they get bigger in ambition bigger in plots and they they introduced um michael wade who was a really good actor actually who never quite sort of broke out of i guess the the low budget world and the yeah. sort of repertory theater thing um like he stands out as like a sort of standout star in it nick briggs definitely comes across as someone by this point who can tell like a decent sort of sci-fi story and it's the Autons. Like, there's, they do, they do a lot with the Autons. I mean, whether that fits into your particular idea of what living plastic should be like, whatever that is. Um, but it's, oh yeah, um, I just like the Autons. Yeah. Whatever they do. Yeah, and you know, it, it, there's a beautiful shot of them in one in the second one of the Autons in their sort of spearhead from space boiler suits walking through a cornfield with their gun, their arms with their guns down, and yeah, it's just yeah. like, it's it's almost like. Had it been in a Doctor Who story, it would have been one of those iconic moments from Doctor Who. But because, again, it's a limited sort of spin-off genre, um, it's not really there. But that was sort of the last big Doctor Who video spin-off. Like, there is there is more. But at that point, you're sort of getting to really when the BBC start to notice that they've got something to sell. And you get things like Death Comes to Time and Real Time and Scream of the Schalke and stuff like that that and you know the bbc even if it's just their websites taking an active an active notice in the fact that there's an audience out there that while it might be limited for a television for a website that if it's going to get 500,000 hits from a drama all of a sudden they've got something they really an audience they can tap into yeah well actually yeah before we get into the book then those uh internet dramas were you watching those at the time i was and uh um, I, they're they're really interesting. Like so, around two thousand and one um, is when Death Comes to Time, which was recorded as a pilot for Radio Four mm. or Radio Five, something like that. That appears, and it's nobody. It doesn't get picked up, and they put it online with some illustrations, and it gets it breaks the BBC website basically because it's new Doctor Who made by the BBC, and it's quite an interesting take. And so the BBC cult website commission. Um, of further episodes for the following year and it's basically five episodes of doctor who that they split into like six minute chunks or something like that um so you literally went back week after week after week and i've got to say this now Go on. death comes to time is one of my favorite doctor who stories ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's uh, i love because it's 
it's completely not sellable to a mainstream audience, but they've completely sort of rebooted the whole mythos of Doctor Who. They've made it more mysterious and more mystical. And there's this character played by Stephen Fry called the Minister. And it's about the last of the Time Lords or gods of the fourth, as they're called in this. Um, and Sylvester McCoy gives one of his best performances. Sophie Aldridge gives one of her best performances. It's got an amazing cast. Yeah. You know, and um, can we do spoilers for something that's 15 years old? I guess we can. I guess you oh. Yeah, there's nothing and to it, stop you. Yeah. Okay, spoilers if you haven't seen it. Um, it ends with the doctor. the doctor dying. Yeah, the, 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 the Doctor dies at the end, um, which is brilliant. Uh, and at the time, nobody expected it. And, and fans were up in arms just going, what is this? What is this? It's rubbish. And also, interestingly, at the time, DWM sort of derided it as like this weird offshoot. And they were like, well, we've got Big Finish making pure Doctor Who. What is this tat? Um, but, you know, is that all mates in bed together? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of tell like, whether they were sort of sticking up for Big Finish because they were thinking, well, if the BBC do well with this, maybe they'll want the license back. Yeah. But the plan always there, what Dan Freeman, who took that on, was saying, well, it was going to be like a next generation thing. So you'd carry on the series with the minister and then eventually the doctor would make this big Jesus like resurrection. But um, they took it in a different direction and the BBC decided to. Um, well, the, yeah, the ironic thing there is the next time they do do one of these animations, it is big finish. Yeah, they they get them in to do real time with Colin Baker, which is um, a Cyberman story, which it's again, it's a really strong story. It's It's dark. It's that's Gary it's Doctor, Russell, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is, isn't it? It's, it's Doctor Who for grown ups without having to rely on sort of sex and swearing. Um, and it works really well. And also with a random uh, cameo from Stuart Lee in there, he plays like one of the supporting cast. Um, yeah. And then they do Sharda eventually. But Sharda was kind of like the idea behind Sharda was big finish, we're going to. To fight with the blessing of the BBC and right, under the guy saying, well, this is a BBC thing, finally tempt um, Tom Baker into the fold, but it didn't work. And so you end up with this weird sort of Sharda remake with Paul McGann, which yeah. is enjoyable enough, but um, I don't think that's what they were what they were aiming for. And then after that, you kind of this kind of leads you up to the 40th anniversary of Doctor Who, and you're on the eve of the announcement that the show's coming back. And it was... Um, you've got the Scream of the Shalkers announced, which is obviously the big one. We're, no one's making Doctor Who, so we're going to cast a brand new Doctor, and we've got the Doctor who should have always done it. It's Richard E. Grant. And it's I, when it came out on DVD, I watched it again, and I remember being thinking it was lackluster at the time. Not lackluster. It's got all the right elements there for a relaunch Doctor Who. It just They're not in the right order, and they're not quite cooked yet. It doesn't quite work for some reason. It's um, not gripping. Yeah, it's not gripping. Like, there's there's no sort of, who is this guy? It's just a miserable man that shows up. Yeah. But there's lots of weird ideas. Like, you've got the robot master in there. At one point, that was going to be a um, a hologram of the Fifth Doctor. Like, oh, really? He was just going to be travelling with a hologram of Peter Davison, which, I mean, is as bonkers as a robot master, I guess. But again, you're making it for you're not making it for a new audience, even though that no. did receive TV, TV adverts. I remember seeing on BBC Three them advertising it, going "New Doctor Who online," and it was um, so around this time. Obviously, the thing that steals its thunder is the return of real the, Doctor Who. They announce it, yeah. and so there was the big 40th anniversary Panopticon um in london which was 
it's gone down in history as a bit of a disaster. It was badly organised. There was some fallout between Gary Russell and Andrew Beach, who ran the convention, and a couple of the doctors boycotted it and wouldn't go. But um, the best thing, it was sponsored by UK Gold, who were doing this big push of UK Gold, the home of Doctor Who. And Mark Gatiss hosted the Saturday evening thing, and he would he just ripped uh, Scream of the Shalka. And the, I, remember him, I remember him coming on and going reading the slogan in front of him going, oh, UK Gold, the home of Doctor Who, not for much longer, which got a great round of applause. And it goes, of course, you know, coming up, we've got um, uh, a new Doctor Who webisode series called Nobody Gives a- About This Now Because the Real <laughs> Thing's Coming Back. Wow. So, so it, was all, it was doomed to fail before it started. I mean, had there been no announcement, maybe you would have got a couple more of them. They did commission another, but, I mean, ultimately by that point... Well, actually, interestingly, it was the money from the commissioned second one that actually went to make the two animated episodes of The Invasion, wasn't it? Of course it did. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly where it ended up. And it was probably better spent that way in terms of what was going on at the time. And it's uh, by that point, Bill Baggs' outputs wound down. BBV, no, um, Real Time have just done their last sort of um, drama for a while, which is Deimos Rising, which is a, as in terms of... Uh, if you call it the last spin-off, which it isn't, you know, they are sort of still gonna ongoing and we'll get to that in a bit. It's it's a it's a really simple thing. It's got um two characters that were created for downtime in it, which was the Briggs daughter, which is played by Beverly Cressman, which is um Kate Lethbridge Stewart. Yes, which apparently's got nothing to do with apparently they're not the same one. If you ask the BBC, they're not the same one. And then Douglas Cavendish, who was in Downtime, and it's a sort of sequel to the Demons. It's just a nice little horror thing with some Doctor Who elements. But the uh, the only real spin-off that's going at that point is um, the Caldor City range. And we haven't really talked about Caldor City. Caldor City is an audio series by um, a company called Magic Bullet, which is set in the world of Chris. Chris Boucher's Doctor Who, we'll call it. So it involves the robots of death, um, Commander Yuvanov, a character played called Castan Iago, played by Paul Darrow. It's got Carnell from an episode of Blake 7. And um, it's... It almost sounds like what we'd call now the ultimate fan wank, but it's one of the best things to be made related to the Doctor Who universe. It's funny. It's action-packed. It's a gripping sort of six-CD story. And actually, you compare it to the big finishes at the time, and this is miles ahead of them. Like, it's, it, it's, it's an incredible production, and I'd never heard it until i tracked until i did this this book and i wasn't even going to cover it i was like i'm sure they did like two cds and that was it and then all of a sudden i found it and i was blown away so that's that if my one recommendation out of anything comes out of this book i would say you have to find caldor city and their follow-up faction paradox series they did right i can't wait till i get to that bit of the book but we are running a bit short of time now because we only had a finite amount of time (laughs) we did indeed i've got to ask you how did the book come about whose idea was it and uh how did you get together with the publisher and you were what's the story behind doing the book so i wanted to read this book for a while but nobody had written it um and it was it was kind of a series of of weird events i work in i work predominantly freelance in video production film and at the time in late sort of 2011 2012 i was working at qvc the shopping channel yeah and one of the guest presenters they have there is beverly cressman who played 
the um, okay, let's pursue it yeah and i sort of bumped into her and i was like i'm sure i know her from somewhere and it sort of woke up these sort of memories of these films that i probably haven't thought about for a while and so i started watching them a bit and i said i wonder if there's a book about that and there wasn't and then about a year later i was working on a pilot for something and i mean this pilot featured several people from doctor who including sylvester mccoy Brian Blessed was in it, Tony Curran. And then for one day, a lady called Joe Castleton came in to play a tiny piece. Oh, well. <laughs> and, and, and I remember going, I know who Joe Castleton is. And she was in the, aud- the uh, Auton thing. So I thought, someone's going to write a book about this. It hasn't been done yet. It hadn't been done. And you, thought, know, you know, what just to cut in slightly, and whenever they get mentioned in the, you know, the appendices of any of the other guidebooks, it's just basically a list of the titles and the cast members. Nobody ever actually said anything about them, did they? Yeah. It, no, it was really weird. And I thought, I knew that there'd been, I knew some behind the scenes sort of gossip that I mentioned at the time. I wasn't really sure how many there were. So what I thought was, I was like, right, I'm going to do some initial research. And this was in 2012. And I just went through my old DWMs and just made little notes of like what was going on just to see if there was any sort of story. And at this point, I wasn't sure whether I was going to write a book. I thought I might do a little blog or something like that, just like with some notes, like trivia notes and maybe a review. And just to sort of, you know, more for myself, more for my own research. And then I think by 2013, the 50th anniversary was coming around. And I was like, I think there's there's so many of these things. And I was quite enjoying watching and listening to them all. I just thought... I think there's a book here and I'd, there was the justice serve book, which it either was out at the time or was about to come out, which was dealt with the audio visuals. And they'd sort of done an episode guide with sort of trivia bits of interviews. And I was like, I'm going to do something. It might be about the nineties completely might be about the wilderness years completely and just focus on these a little bit. And I started interviewing people. And the first person I interviewed was Andy Lane who wrote wartime and we spoke for about an hour and a half just about wartime. I thought, well, that's quite interesting. So I made a list of everybody I wanted to interview, most of whom I got after about three or four of them. I had a day where I interviewed a man called Tim Saywood who wrote some of the BBV audio plays later on and basically just helped out behind the scenes. And he told me some really interesting stuff. I was like, Oh, this is, this is like an interesting story now. And then in the afternoon, I met Nicola Bryant, um, who was doing a talk in town. And I just basically said, can I interview her for 20 minutes about these weird Doctor Who spinoffs? And she was like, yeah. And then she opened up a little bit about why she left those productions. And you know, she got quite angry, as it were, about she basically felt that she was owed money from these things. And Tim Saywood had said some similar things about other people. And so I started digging, digging in the, the dark corners of the internet, um, like Rec Arts, Doctor Who, which all still exist, to see what was there. And I sort of found there was this story, so it was really just getting access to the people, hunting them down to see what they said. And the, the big ones for me were always going to be Keith Barnfather, Nick Briggs, and Bill Baggs, all of whom said yes. Nick Briggs was the very last person to do it. And he he basically completed the package and sort of gave me a lot of stuff. Like I hadn't I, I hadn't heard him be so frank in interviews about things before. Yeah, yeah. And as you'll find if as you get to the end of the book, he gets more wound up and stuff. But I'll point this out now, actually, while uh, while I've got a, an audience to say so. Some people have said he comes across quite sort of angry in the book, and he is angry. But I would also say 
when I was interviewing him, he was laughing his head off the whole time at the the ridiculousness and absurdity of the situation of these people trying to make these ridiculous sort of passing off um, sort of Doctor Who spin-offs, rip-offs, whatever you want to call them. And then and I'd met, I met Bill Baggs twice, and he was a very, very interesting character, as you'll get when you read the book. It's yeah. sort of like the, the way, the path of his career, his trajectory, and how he gets there and how he sort of falls from whatever small height he had is quite interesting because there was, there was a possibility, and I think Nick Briggs sort of says this in the book, that Bill Baggs was going to be, it could have been, people thought it could have been big news in the television and film industry but for various reasons you find out he never he never quite gets there so once i'd got i i ended up doing about 20 just i've been digressing i did about 20 of these interviews and i was like right i've definitely got a story here now i need to fill in the gaps and so i just um, found more people found them in the weirdest of places just sort of like one of them uh, uh who wrote a crinoid audio I found him because I, there was no mention of him on the internet apart from his Doctor Who spin-off that he wrote. And I found him on a gaming forum and had to contact the forum administrators who put me in touch with him. It was a really peculiar wow. thing. Um, and then um, I'd probably written about 10 chapters of it, or roughly, and I just put on, I was like, right, I'm going to put this on Gallifrey Base in the book section. More to see if anybody goes, oh, we've got uh, a book coming out like that in six months' time, so you might as well give up or whatever. And Stuart Douglas from Adverse Books saw the post and he got in touch and he said, um, I'd be interested in putting that book out. Can you send me what you've got? And I sent him what I got. And he was like, yeah, it's really good. Let's let's do that. And then five years later or whatever it was, it's, it's finally out. I mean, it's one of these things. It, it took a long time because there was – Work comes up and you're really busy for two months, and then you get a bit of t- downtime. You write downtime, downtime. No <laughs> yeah. And it just and so the it's it sort of snowballed from there. And I fi- I probably finished it about a year ago, but then we had so many proofing issues. And I, I, I will say this now: there's still a couple of proofing errors that, that made it into the book, which we're going to fix on the next uh, publishing run. So uh, if you get this one, it's very limited because uh, it won't quite be like that the next time you see it. But uh, it was, it, yeah, it just snowballed and little things like because I I wasn't really sure what I was doing when I was first writing, what format I was going to take. There was loads of research and references that I just hadn't referenced properly and I had to dig them all out. And it was just yeah. like, so the last 10% took like a year. And then various, because of the content of the book, various people wanted to proof it. Um, like they wanted to read their bits and make sure that they weren't going to get into trouble and change certain things. And uh, yes. um, it was, yeah, so it was just a bit peculiar, like sort of getting their feedback and hearing what they had to say about it. And they wanted to change things and then i was like well do you want it? i still like to put this can you think of a way to say it in a less sort of i don't know controversial way um and occasionally they came back with things that were even more controversial so you know uh, at, the, at the end of it like by certainly the first half of the book is very sort of look what the fans are doing and then by the second half it's very much into it's where things start going a bit peculiar as yeah yeah i can imagine um but so um yeah that's that's how it came about and it's finally done and it's out there and the response so far has been really good and i'm just i'm I'm just kind of glad that i've been able to tell the story because i think it's i think it's a small bit of 
the Doctor Who history, but I think it's an important bit that has been overlooked for a long time, and I'm not going to well, argue with it. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the interesting thing about it. It's this it's this area of Doctor Who that's kind of slightly off to the side, but it's not just off to the side in terms of where it fits inside any kind of official or unofficial canon, but it's yeah. so far off to the side that it's like an untold story. This yeah, book I is... Mean, that- this book is, I would say, for any sort of fan of Doctor Who, kind of considers himself like a student of Doctor Who, this book is an absolute must-buy book because this is a story that they need to sit down and read. I mean, that that was that was what I was, hope, I was hoping I was going to get out of it. The worst thing that could have happened is that two years into researching it, I suddenly find out that, you know, it all went swimmingly well. Everybody was very happy. But it's, 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 <laughs> I don't think you were ever going to find that out. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't the. It's not so even the controversy. It's it's about people cutting their teeth on things. So, I mean, you've got Mark Gatiss, Nicholas Briggs, Nigel Fares, people like that who are doing this for the first time. You know, um, you've got. It's it's not only charting the trajectory of some careers on the up and some that failed to ev- that sort of plateaued out. Um, it's also. And this is a, you know, maybe it's a bad thing to say, but careers on the down. You've got these people who were in a prime time British um, show who are now doing some of them just for the sheer fun of it, and some of them maybe a bit more out of necessity in the hope that it'll boost their profile. Suddenly doing these what are essentially amateur productions. So it's a little, it's it's kind yeah. of it's kind of the crossing between Doctor Who fans and their stars as their careers go in various different directions it's 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 an interesting story of of all these different people and also like perhaps what happens if you get a little bit too involved in the show you love and you haven't or something that you love but you haven't got quite the i don't know the the muscle to back it up as it were yeah be careful what you wish for as it were yeah and and, but as i say like the 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 caldor city ones stand out as a highlight some of the other ones you know i'm very fond of all of these films and all well, i was gonna say i was gonna throw a last question at you of the video ones which is perhaps the ones that people are most likely to uh to either know or to seek out what would be if you could say to somebody who was interested but had never seen any of them this is the one to go to if you could recommend just one which one would it be if i could recommend just one yeah it's probably not it's probably not one that people would expect but i would say zygon i would no it's definitely not zygon (laughs) in fact only ever watch that if you've had a few drinks and you've got some mates around because sitting there and watching it by yourself and having to watch it again and again to try and write a book about it is you know it's it's a tough process but i would actually say the terror game which is the four stranger story uh which was also the first one that i saw and it's really where um nick briggs takes over the stranger and turns it from a doctor who spin-off to something else and actually the sort of the conceit behind the whole thing you could quite easily take that and apply it to a drama series now and reboot it and and you'd have like a solid workable premise for a series that i think would stand up today Uh, and it's got um david troughton in it and another guy called john wadmore who doesn't really act anymore but they're like a a duo of bad guys essentially chasing the stranger or Solomon as, as he's now known. And they're really like the chemistry they have between them. It's like, it's a 
duo, I say in the book, a duo that's sort of worthy of Robert Holmes and sort of their snappy dialogue and their performances. It's really, so it's a strong production. And I think it shows if you push the boundaries of your creativity with a limited budget as a Doctor Who fan and pull it away from something of like something you could really achieve um like a really solid drama it's just a shame that nothing that didn't really live up to it afterwards ah right so it's called downtime the lost years of doctor who and it's available now from obverse books and people should go out and buy it yes i i would highly recommend you go out and buy it so i can get rich off it i mean that's (laughs) not quite what's going to happen but no i just just to reiterate i think it is when even if i hadn't written this i would be saying i think like you said it's an important part of the Doctor Who story and I think we're so used to getting all these facts and figures these days and things that we've found out over the years I think this is just one tiny little bit that perhaps you well, didn't yeah. and you I wanted mean, to hear about you go on the internet and some of these things there's barely anything about them online no exactly like there's it, some of them were so hard to find anything about it, but um, others they, obviously we're wrapping up now but just very quickly the yeah. early ones were all covered extensively in DWM. By the time there's Big Finisher about and things like that, these have become a footnote, and it's much harder to find anything about them in the Doctor Who magazine for a start, and even some of the smaller fan press. So, you know, it's that that it, that's when it gets more interesting because also the people behind them, particularly BBV, get a bit more desperate in what they're trying to do. Ah. Right. So, very last thing before we go, leave me with yeah. one little nugget of. I don't know, gossip or information or something, something you found out that surprised you while you were putting the book together, something to whet the listener's appetite. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Elizabeth Sladen really hated Bill Baggs. Because, <laughs> um, he, he screwed her over with releasing an audio play she did on CD when it wasn't allowed to. And um, I won't, it's, it's, it's too explicit for me to say on this podcast, but um, Nick Briggs tells, <laughs> says, says what she said. And um, but yes, so yeah, Elizabeth Sladen was not a fan of him. Wow! And people will find out more about that. <laughs> <laughs> they will do when they when when they pick up the book, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a little nugget there for you. Excellent. Right next week on the podcast, uh, Matt. And I will be asking the question we posed at the end of our episode with uh, David Kitchen when he came over from Australia. And we talked about Doctor Who in terms of uh, being something that reflects the times. And we thought, uh, you know, Doctor Who and politics was not such a symbiotic relationship as we'd expected. So we said, what is Doctor Who? Well, on next week's podcast, we're going to attempt to answer that, or at least Matt and I are, because we're the only two free. And then after that, we're kind of into our fifth birthday celebrations, but you'll discover more about that when we get there. Exciting stuff. Yeah. But until then, thanks, Dylan, for coming along and talking about all this stuff. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Until next week, then, I was JR. And I was Dylan. And we'll speak again soon.